Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, having a holler and hootenanny at Flirty Gerties. You practiced that one, didn't you? No, I didn't. Wow. Well, this is, our, uh, this is our 99th official review. Yeah, what a great penultimate episode before the 100th episode. <laughs> this is how you kick it in the doors for number 100. It, it truly is a momentous occasion, and we thought we would have a little sing and dance about it. And, well, we've stumbled upon quite an interesting film this week, and so I thought we needed to bring in a singing and dancing expert. It is Danny from the It's a Musical podcast. Hello, Danny. How are you doing, sir? Hello, I'm very good. Thank you for welcoming me to this Wild West romp. Yeah, I mean, I you've been around talking to us since like day naught, I think, on on Twitter and such. And I know you're yeah. a big spy movie fan, but it was like trying to find the perfect the Venn diagram of spy movies and musicals. And we may have just stumbled upon it this week. But I think before we tackle the film, let's talk about you a wee bit. So uh, I mentioned at the start you're from It's a Musical podcast. Tell us a wee bit about that and how it got started. So that was our lockdown project, me and my now fiance, where we had nothing to do. We just moved into our flat on March 14th, 2020. And then three days later, we were isolating. We thought, what do we do with ourselves? What on earth are we going to do to keep us occupied? And we decided, let's start a podcast. And we talked about it since we'd started dating that I knew nothing about musicals and Drew loves musicals. And they thought, what better way to integrate me and make sure that I was marriage material than to force me to watch all the musicals. And here we are. I think we're on episode 116 now. And it's crazy. I didn't know there were so many musicals. I have a question for you. I guess it may be two questions here. Yeah. So when you start on this musical journey, what's the first one that wins you over? And then also, what's the first one that makes you go, I don't know about this? I think the first one that made me think, I'm not sure about this, was ironically number one with Joseph. Right. We did Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I wasn't sold. I have a fun story about that musical. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um... It probably shows a few things about me, but those who know me well know this is pretty on par for what I'm like. When that came out in the early 90s, I think, or perhaps the late 80s, when that was really popular and, and the, the song was like in the charts, um, I I had a copy of the record and I would sing it repeatedly around the house. So much that when I was out with my mum walking down the high street one day, we went past a fire station and I cried until until I was allowed to go and sing it for the firefighters. So at about the age of four or five, I sung, um, I close my eyes, pull back the curtains, ah, to about 20 firefighters. And I uh, got a lovely round of applause. And from that moment on, <laughs> I've been a Technicoat-wearing kind of guy. I was praying you were going to say you were 25 at the time. <laughs> yeah, this was last week. <laughs> and sorry for the singing and sorry for everyone's yeah. ears. <laughs> Oh, no, it's better. It's maybe better than any of the singing we're going to get in this one. Well, so, Danny, the follow up there was um, what was the first one that actually gave you confidence about the journey you're going on with uh, It's a Musical? 
I think it was episode five when we did My Fair Lady because I just looked at it and realised that musicals aren't just this kind of like platform for an hour and a half to have a bit of fun. You know, it's all just singing, dancing, but nothing with substance. Like I watched My Fair Lady and I just loved it. I thought it was perfect. And I, I realised there is so much more to like musicals as an art form and as a medium. And yeah, like gone from strength to strength since then. There's been some good, there's been some bad, there's been some ugly. <laughs> and have you found there's been any, you know, eras that jump out at you or a style of musical that has become your favorite? I always, I know I'm going to have a great time when we watch Starkid musicals. Like every single time we're going to those ones, I know that I'm going to have fun because there's the element of parody and a little bit of gross out over the top humor. I'm really ashamed at how much I've enjoyed Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals. Like there's a part of me that feels like I need to just bathe and scrub myself clean because with the exception of Joseph, I've had a great time watching every musical we've covered that he's involved with, which does make me feel really gross because he's gross. Phantom, Phantom is a wonderful uh, spectacle to see it live at least anyway, I would say. Yeah, we've not had a chance to see it at the theatre yet. I'm, I mean, Drew has seen it a few times at the theatre, but that's one of the ones I'm desperate to go see in London just for like the end of Act One chandelier drop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's it's a musical. And of course, we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. But I mentioned at the start, you're also a bit of a spy movie fan. I am. So uh, you are. And so we have to check, check your credentials because you're coming on to talk about spy movies. So my question is always, what's your favorite spy movie? Oh, that is an impossible question, isn't it? Because it depends really what mood I'm in for. Do you want something like really serious where you're kind of going along with it as as your insert character? Or do you want something that you can just watch and laugh? Like the amount of times I've watched the Austin Powers or Spy Kids films, just because I need something on that I can sit, relax, I don't have to think about. Um, I know controversially, I really enjoyed No Time to Die. Like, I just haven't had a cinema experience like it, where at the end, like, just being part of that ending, and you, you you know, I was listening to one of your recent episodes, and I can't remember which one it was, but you were talking about that you, you're falling out of love of going to the cinema because the amount of noise that you go, when you go there, and just being there, and you could hear a pin drop, and even as you were leaving, nobody was talking, everyone just felt like they'd been gut-punched. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think I would always say it's like pure comfort film. It is Austin Powers or, or the Bourne, Bourne franchise. Like when I started to fall out of love with spy films because they all felt pretty much the same, Jason Bourne was like really like a breath of fresh air. I just loved it so much. Uh, probably Bourne Supremacy. Um, like the second one for me was my favorite one. Yeah, that was our favorite as well. Bourne Ultimatum's good. I, it's, I mean, it's not controversial to like No Time to Die. People online like to make it controversial, apparently liking the fact that they they closed the story arc in Bond, which is something that's basically almost never been done, is controversial. Uh, I mean, they need to check themselves. I, I have no time for that. Yeah. There's a pun there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. You're welcome, everyone. But um, no, I mean, we've not done the Austin Powers films, but I completely get it. Like, there's there's this whole corner of spy movies that is not really about these complex weaving plots it's more just about having a bit of fun and a romp yeah um which uh i mean 
Maybe we should have a bit of a good time party time right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, buddy. Well, I think that cues us up. Cam, what are we talking about? Yes, we are talking about the 1967 musical western spy film, The Fastest Guitar Alive, starring Roy Orbison. <laughs> yeah, that was a sentence. That is a sentence that just happened, yes. The least likely spy. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I just read the top line of the letterbox.com synopsis, and I've already got questions. Uh, let alone about the film itself. So maybe I'll jump right to that because it's not a film that I think people have really heard about. I posted about it on Twitter today and had people going, I've never heard of this film. Frankly, nor had we. Yeah, that's right. So here it is. The Fastest Guitar Alive. America's hottest singing star on the screen at last. And here's where the question comes in. Confederate super spy Roy Orbison? Super spy. Well, I think, given you know his uh, secret weapon there, I, I guess he's a, you're a super spy once you've got gadgets. That yeah. makes sense. He does have a gadget. Okay, okay, he does. The the, the Confederate Q branch is apparently uh, very forward thinking. Mm. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Confederate. Well, <laughs> pull up, Cam. Pull up. Yeah. Um, the Confederate super spy Roy Orbison and his partner in crime, Sammy Jackson, travel to San Francisco near the end of the Civil War, masquerading, respectively, as a singer-guitar instructor and a magic elixir vendor. Once there, Orbison dons a fake wig, beard and moustache and steals Union gold to bring back to the South, aided by a guitar that doubles as a gun. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. People people give us flack online and I, frequently for doing, you know, not popular films. Right. And we took the mickey out of ourselves back at Springfield Rifle about a month or two ago for going obscure. Have we topped ourselves already? Um, I, I think, like, a movie like this, it's ultra ex- obscure, but, like, the fact it stars Roy Orbison somehow raises it above, I think, the level of some of the other ones we might do on here that are, like, even more obscure. Like, this one has some curiosity about it. It has, I don't want to say cult fandom around it. I don't think that's true at all. But there's a certain amount of people that at least recognize it as an oddity. I think it probably has more entries online than, uh, like, in terms of reviews on IMDb than Springfield Rifle did. And perhaps The House on 92nd Street, too. Maybe British agent as well. Yeah. Uh, well, I usually we ask the question, you know, what's your original connection? Did you see this in theatres? But I, I don't think any of us did. I'd never seen it. <laughs> no. I, yeah. And, and, and we, none of us had heard of it either, I assume. No. 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 Well. <sighs> Maybe we could ask a different question. You know, sure. what was our connections to Roy Orbison? That's a great question, Cam. Um, Danny, you first. I recognized the name and i feel like he possibly did christmas songs um and i know he did pretty woman that's about it i have no real connection to him i was just like i recognized the name and i had to do a quick google i was like why is it a big deal that this is his like film debut oh that's because he's a well-established like pop star of the time and then i saw oh pretty woman oh i know him then 
no other connection. I um I can't say I have a connection to Roy Orbison like himself. I I was a well, I still am a massive Beatles fan, but I was a huge Beatles fan in my early twenties. And as part of like discovering their discography and their solo discographies, I found out that George Harrison formed the Traveling Warburys with uh, Bob Dylan, uh, Roy Orbison. I'm forgetting a bunch of names. Uh, Tom Petty, and there's one more that's escaping my mind. And, and Ringo Starr jumped in from time to time. And that was how I sort of got into Roy Orbison's music. And then I sort of traveled back into listening to some of Roy Orbison stuff. But yeah, the the Traveling Wilburys were, were my sort of gateway drug to Roy Orbison. But what about you, Cam? For me, I can't say that Roy Orbison was like someone my parents played a lot when I was growing up. But they did have the Pretty Woman soundtrack. And that was something that was played on like every you know major car trip we went on. And so that, of course, had Oh Pretty Woman on it by Roy Orbison. So I was very familiar with his voice just from being on all of those car trips. And then as I got older and into films, it was more like I recognized his music... Th- through its use in film. David Lynch was a big fan. And you've got In Dreams in Blue Velvet, which is like one of my favorite scenes in like film history, where Dean Stockwell lip syncs that song. And then you also had Crying, I believe, in Mulholland Drive. So like uses like that really jumped out to me. And there's something very haunting about his voice. It's like you would almost swear it was like run through filters or something to make it sound like that. It sounds just kind of ethereal. And so I always thought it was really fantastic when you paired it up like with David Lynch stuff, for example. Yeah, his voice really stood out among the crowd, especially when I was doing some reading about him in the in the background research for this. That was kind of what he was known for was his his voice. But he was never really known for like his showmanship or anything like that. It really was just about the voice, which uh, maybe is something we'll, we'll, we'll tap into in a little bit. Uh-huh. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> um but but Cam, I, I am curious. Uh, I'm sure it was a whirlwind affair. How did the uh, how did Roy Orbison get his fastest guitar? This is more interesting than I really thought it would be. Uh, oh, wow. So yeah, so a little bit of just background for those who don't really know Roy Orbison. Maybe you know younger listeners. He was a Texas-born musician um, who had started off in you know a country western band as a teen before he was signed by Sun Records in 1956. But his real success would come just a few years later when he would be signed to Monument Records, where he would have a run from 1960 to 1966 with 22 singles that hit the Billboard Top 40, including songs like Only the Lonely, Running Scared, Crying, In Dreams, and Oh Pretty Woman. And he had like a just powerhouse six years there. But it hit a point where like record sales were kind of going into decline for him towards the end of that 66 period. And he was also in a very tumultuous marriage to a woman named Claudette. And there'd been infidelities. They had divorced and then reconciled. And um, they were both big motorcycle aficionados. And they had been introduced to motorcycles. She was a lifelong fan. He said he was introduced by Elvis Presley. And they were riding home from Bristol, Tennessee, when she was struck by the door of a pickup that had pulled in front of her and was killed instantly. And so tragic event and Roy Orbison obviously grief-stricken threw himself into this project the fastest guitar alive to kind of keep his mind focused elsewhere and he worked with um, songwriting collaborator Bill Dees on creating the soundtrack like that was what he was doing sort of following her death and how did this movie kind of come to be this project kind of fall into his lap well it was originally intended to be an Elvis Presley film Back in the late 50s, it was going to follow up Love Me Tender. 
and Elvis ultimately passed on it and instead did Loving You. So this script just kind of sat by. Well, just maybe for the people who haven't seen the Elvis films, where does that feel that film or where would it have fallen in his filmography? Like, is that in his popular period or when it was making the, the sort of the lesser known ones towards the end? That would be in the pretty popular period. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's when you get towards the later 60s, that's when the movies kind of mid 60s is when they kind of get lesser and lesser. But um, this is sort of like the, the I don't want to say the rise of the Elvis movies, but they've kicked off and they're consistently doing well. Gaining momentum. Exactly, yeah. And Roy Orbison had expressed interest in making movies for a long time. He was a huge movie buff and sometimes would go and see three movies in a row when he had a free day. And so when he was approached by Sam Katzman, who was kind of a B-movie producer with a list of (laughs) credits that are (laughs) shaky at best, (laughs) who said, I would love to get you in a movie, Roy Orbison was really excited. He saw it as like... I am a rock star. This is kind of a luxury I can have now is getting to actually be in a movie. That is super exciting. Well, it's what you did at that point. Like the Beatles were in films. Elvis was in films. And he, like the Beatles were opening for Roy Orbison at one point. Like it, it, there is a, a a through line here that makes sense as to why he'd want to do it. Yeah. And so he signed also a deal with MGM, a five picture deal to make these sort of musical, you know, films. And um, they were working with a script by a writer named Robert E. Kent, who was Panama-born, got his start um, on the 1937 film Paid to Dance, which was a Rita Hayworth vehicle, and then just went on a incredible string of B-movies. You go through this guy's filmography, he wrote like 100-something movies, and they just are all over the board. Things like, you know, Charlie Chan in Reno, a few Dick Tracy films, Tower of London with Vincent Price, Hoot Nanny Hoot, uh, Scott's favorite film. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> and he also did a movie called Spy Ship, which I have added to our master list to cover sometime in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want more of, of, of his type of films, absolutely. Yeah. And he was also a producer in, and he, starting in the 1950s who did a lot of westerns, detective films, horror. He did a really, really good sci-fi movie in 1958 called It, The Terror from Beyond Space. He didn't write it, but he produced it. And that movie was crucial. It's crucial DNA to the Alien franchise. If you go back and watch it, you will see all of the germs that would become Alien in 1979. Dan O'Bannon was a big fan of that movie. So, you know, notable guy, um, you know, in kind of that B-movie world. And uh, Fastest Guitar was one of his final films. He would do a couple more things after. He did a few Wild Wild West episodes, as well as a film called The Christine Jurgensen Story in 1970. And then he wrapped it up. So you had a very, like stable kind of B-movie writer just cranking these things out. I was just quickly looking at his uh, his IMDb. He has a ton of credits, you're right. Quite the uh, quite the story. But uh, I, I, there's nothing wrong with a B-movie writer. We've had plenty of B-movies on the show that have given us a world of joy, so that's all fine. Definitely, yeah. And the director, who is also kind of interesting, his name is Michael D. Moore, and he's Vancouver, BC born. He's the first um, person we think we I think we've covered on this podcast who's from where I'm from. <laughs> That's always exciting. Yeah. G- given uh, what we've got to talk about today, is that a good thing? <laughs> yes, it is. And I'll tell you why. This guy's okay. fascinating. So he began as a child actor in 1919 and appeared in a movie called The Unpainted Woman. 
And he was a child actor until 1927 when he aged out. But all of these silent films, you know, he'd been popping up as a child actor. And then in the 1930s into the early 40s, he went and worked in the prop departments and worked on movies like the uh, Claudette Clobert, Cleopatra, and the war film Wake Island. And then he moved into second unit. And he started that in 1947 with the Ray Milland Western California. We covered Ray Milland on Ministry of Fear. Mm -hmm. And this guy went on to become one of the all-time great second unit directors. Yeah. I'm just going to list some of his films. The Ten Commandments. A ton of Elvis movies. A ton. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Patton. Never Say Never Again. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. Little Drummer Girl. <laughs> no. Willow. No. No. Don't take me back. I don't want to go back. <laughs> Willow. Ghostbusters 2. The Mighty Ducks. And he wrapped up his career with 102 Dalmatians. But if you just go through, take a second and go through his second unit filmography, there's a pretty good chance he worked on one of your favorite movies. Like he did yeah. an unbelievable amount of work, but not a lot of work as a director. In 1966, he directed the Elvis film Paradise Hawaiian Style. Then he did another film called Eye for an Eye. And then he did Fastest Guitar. But he really didn't do much else. He did a 1983 black exploitation film called Mr. Deathman. And that was kind of the end of the road. Not a big directorial filmography, but in terms of a second unit guy, one of the legends. I got really excited because I thought he said he worked on Toy Soldiers, but it's not the one I thought it was. Were you thinking Small Soldiers? Yeah, I was thinking that. Oh, that film's really funny. I remember that. No, no. no, Not that film. Different film. Was it Toy Soldiers from 92? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of a modest hit, I think, over here in North America. He did like Flubber, 101 Dalmatians as well, Three Musketeers. People really Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings, yeah. A lot of your favorite 90s films this man has uh, been a big part of. Yeah, it's an unbelievable filmography. Like, that is a guy like... If you were to talk to him, you could track like the entire history of like blockbuster cinema. Yeah, kind of wish we'd asked Barbara Carrera about, uh, about Michael Demore. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Now this film was a critical and commercial disaster. <laughs> so uh, that kind of explains why it's not really well known. And I found an interesting quote from um, Orbison's biographer Ellis Amburn who wrote the book Dark Star, the Roy Orbison story. He said, Roy's lapse in judgment in taking the role may have been attributable to the fact that he had always been an avid movie fan and starring in his own film, however trite, was one of the prerogatives of a rock star that he did not intend to miss. It was intended to be a serious film, but Cat Ballou had just won an Oscar and so they changed it to a comedy. Now, there's a couple questions here. One, I mean, Cat Ballou is a good movie. That's a Jane Fonda a Lee Marvin film that was really popular in the time. I saw it back when I was pretty young, but it was a fun movie. Is it a comedy? Yeah, it's a comedy western. So, like, I can kind of believe that that movie would have influence, but not to spoil too much, but we watched The Fastest Guitar Alive. Can you imagine that film as being played serious? No. Absolutely not. I just, I just want to, I want to see, like, the serious... I mean, like, okay, I'm trying to put myself into into the headspace of a serious spy film for a second. Let's go with Little Drummer Girl. Okay? Yeah. Spy, spy connected tissue to the director there. Could you imagine the minute where Charlie pulls out a guitar and then the barrel of a gun slowly creeps out of the top of the guitar? To a wacky sound effect? Yeah. Where's the slide whistle, Cam? We need a slide whistle for yeah, that. Yeah, no kidding. I have to dig <laughs> that out. Yeah. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure that uh, that fun concept would translate to a serious spy film. Yeah, and especially if it's being written for an Elvis film in 1957 or something. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe the, the actual guitar gun thing was an addition when it was a comedy. Maybe there was, like, earnest emotion to it. Because the Elvis films, they're kind of goofy, fun times, but they can sometimes take the relationship seriously, whereas this does feel almost like spoof. It, it doesn't know what it's necessarily spoofing. Yeah, well. <laughs> it's just kind of it's taking pot shots at something. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I don't know. But, uh, as I said, this movie was a complete bomb. The top three for this year, number one was The Graduate, number two was The Jungle Book, and number three was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. You also just had a huge batch of spy films this year, like a lot of the legendary ones. You Only Live Twice, Casino Royale 67, In Like Flint, the Matt Helm film, The, the Ambushers, Billion Dollar Brain, the Raquel Welch fa- uh, film Fathom. So just a ton of movies. And a few postscripts on this film that are, I think, pretty interesting. So MGM had a five-film contract. They never picked up after this movie. They never decided to roll the dice on a second film with Orbison. Um, but he would in the future, do a couple more movie roles. In 1980, he popped up in the Meatloaf film, Roadie, which I had never heard of. And I don't think it's a spy film, so we can't cover it, but yeah. Okay, okay. Anything else? He also showed up in an uncredited cameo in the 1988 John Hughes film, She's Having a Baby. Nope, never seen that. It's one of the few John Hughes I haven't seen, actually. I should probably remedy that, but... uh... It's interesting. By definition, he truly was the fastest guitar because uh, he burnt through a five-picture contract in one film. That's true. Who can say that, (laughs) damn it? That's that's an achievement. And, you know, Roy Arbison, this film was kind of spawned out of tragedy, and tragedy would continue to haunt uh, Roy Arbison going forward. Like, the year after this movie was released, his two eldest sons died in a house fire while he was touring in Britain. And um, then his career just kind of spiraled out. And it wasn't until the 80s when there was a real revival because of people like David Lynch, who I referenced, the Pretty Woman soundtrack in 1990, but also a lot of musicians who were rising and becoming the big names in that 80s, 90s period started really paying tribute to him and how important he was in influencing them. And uh, he had, you know, a pretty consistent run through the 80s of being recognized as a legend but he did die on december 6th 1988 so it was a pretty short-lived um you know kind of reassessment of a career that he was around for but to this day he's considered one of the legends of his time i'll always remember when i was sort of discovering the traveling Wilburys and listening to that first album he's on basically all of the tracks some of them he's leading some of them he's just backing vocals and they recorded the first video for handle with care everyone's in it george harrison they're all they're all singing and then they did the second single, which is End of the Line, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. And he died before they could film the video. And so in the music video, there's just a, a rocking chair where he's doing his his like vocal line. Um, and it's like a really haunting image. And it actually makes me a little bit emotional thinking about that because it's, it was, well, very important song to me. But just remembering that from the video and like their tribute to him, it was quite moving. Yeah, he's like one of the all-time greats and has had just had so much influence. I mean, this movie is ultimately a blip on the radar of Roy Orbison, but it's kind of fell in a really fascinating time period, which really blew me away. And I also stumbled across something that I think is... There may be a fan of this movie out there in the form of Quentin Tarantino, who used one of the songs from the soundtrack for this movie, a song that's not in the movie... But there is a song on the soundtrack called There Won't Be Many Coming Home that plays at the end of The Hateful Eight. 
Wow. Yeah. Okay, so it's not even featured in the film. It's just in the soundtrack. So Roy Orbison recorded the song, I assume. Yes. And I, I know that song very well because it's an incredible ending song for that film. But uh, I didn't realize, you know, up until last night when I was doing the research that it was attached to Fastest Guitar Alive. Joining us on Friday for a Spy Master interview. Oh, no. <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, just... But hey, uh, Quentin seems like just like the kind of chap that would have found this film somehow. I guarantee he has a like a uh, you know thirty five millimeter reel of it in his house. He may he might just have the fastest guitar. He might. Oh, I could imagine him buying that. Yeah, someone has oh that prop. God. I guarantee it. There's probably a couple, right? There's got to be like one yeah. that extends, one that's like stuck. Yeah, there's yeah. got to be a few of them out there. Well, they're stuck in an MGM archive somewhere. Yeah, I think the thing with this film that just shocked me the most was like how late it was like you look at it and you, i just thought it was like from the 40s or you know from the 50s the fact that it's 1967 and you've got three bond films at the time yeah and like big ones you only live twice it's like a very cinematic feeling bond film yeah. and this this feels very small scale tv movie almost and also just in the realm of westerns this feels like it's doing like classic Hollywood Western, like Westerns from like the 40s or something. And we are well past that. We're coming up to like the Wild Bunch. Um, the Clint Eastwood, you know, Spaghetti Westerns are out around this time. They've, all, I think they're all out by this point. So it's like they've already reinvented the Western for this new generation. And this movie is like paying tribute to Westerns that aren't made anymore. Yeah. Quite an interesting tale we've woven in just, the, just, in just talking about the behind the scenes. But I think it's time we all gather close and snuggle huggled. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about our thoughts on the film Danny you're the guest you first what did you think of the fastest guitar alive it was an experience <laughs> I'm really glad I watched it but I think I didn't go into it knowing anything just other than the, like the Roy Orbison stuff and I was enjoying it until I, I well two things that like really took me out of it is firstly the representation of the indigenous Americans I that was just like okay it's that sort of film okay it's of a time period for me what really was then like what am i watching is the fact that they're on the confederate side and then i'm just like how do i invest in these guys aren't the confederates the bad guys you know imagine watching like a cold war thriller and you're trying to root for the the russians it's I just felt like very like dirty, like trying to trying to go for these guys. I'm like, how do I root for them as the good guys? It's 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 a very valid point. I wrote that down in in my notes. You know, you, the premise is difficult because your protagonists are not necessarily working on the side of good. Yeah, but I suppose the only thing I would say is is all a matter of framing because I'm not I'm not standing behind the Confederacy here. It's more of a case of Take, for instance, your example of the Russians during the Cold War. If you if you build a protagonist that has a sympathy and a story, a sympathetic story behind them, and they're trying to do good in the machinations of the Soviet Union, then you can kind of invest in them as a protagonist. This doesn't really do anything to uh, you know, build any uh, sort of investment in its lead. Exactly, and I don't know if that's partly the acting chops of Roy Orbison. I felt far more attached to Steve at times than I ever did Johnny. 
Uh, can you just refrain? Can you just? It's acting chop. He only had the one. <laughs> <laughs> I felt far more attached to Steve at times. I thought he was really like competent, and I was like, oh, I'd like to see more of him. There's some really good like spy tropes, though. You know, I was skeptical at first. How much spy? spy activity are we going to get in this you know you've got costumes you've got a fancy gadget with this great guitar you've got i really liked when they tried to do like these weird little car chases but obviously in wagons i thought that was really interesting too it was i enjoyed it i enjoyed it for you know an 87 minute film it definitely had me like head in hands at the time going what am i watching what is going on here and i liked some of the songs i thought the songs were actually quite good even if they were a little bit shoehorned in and didn't always add to the plot like i thought river was a slower song that wasn't necessary but when they're up on that stage i i had a great time watching them perform well that, that's actually a really interesting question to bring up maybe as part of your top line review and you said like you like some of the songs is there any that really stood out to you i mean personally i was a big fan of pistolero yeah that's, yeah that's, pistolero that really holds up i think maybe not so much medicine man that one's not good. That <laughs> one is not good, Scott. Pull up, uh, pull up. <laughs> oy, oy, oy. I did like the fastest guitar alive. I thought, you know, as a titular song goes, that was quite a fun song. It was quite nice. You know, as you get these panning, sweeping shots of the Wild West and you just hear this nice, like, song. I thought that felt very of the time period. It was quite, you know, romantic towards Westerns. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think... Um... Maybe we'll come back to the soundtracks and the likes, but Cam, what did, what did you think of The Fastest Guitar Alive? So I feel like I was well prepped for this when I realized it had been an Elvis you know, pitch for a film because I've seen a few Elvis films and they are barely movies. They're basically just like a clothesline to attach some songs to and, you know... Uh, good times aimed at teenagers, that kind of stuff. So, like, I was kind of like, okay, I know what I'm getting. I'm not signing up for, like, a uh, particularly deep experience. And I did not get a very deep experience. It was a very strange movie in that, like, it was, as I, you know, said, like, creating a Western story that seemed to exist in a time that didn't, you know, it just was not the norm for, like, 1960s Westerns to play like this. This felt This felt so, like, antiquated as a Western experience. And then like, boy, this film is built around Roy Orbison. Yeah. And look, let me say this about Roy Orbison as an actor. He is one of the greatest musicians of all time. Oh yeah. That is what I can say about him as an actor. (laughs) 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 Because like Roy Orbison, you can see he's often waiting for people to finish talking to say his lines. Yeah. He is incredibly stilted and not expressive at all and the movie's built around him and he's supposed to be this kind of like dashing daring do spy character you know he's smooching with the ladies and all this sort of stuff and i did not buy any of it for a second and that's supposed to be the charisma at the heart of your movie like an elvis film it's driven by elvis's charisma the storytelling is very secondary and here that's the case like Anything to do with, like, gold thefts and all that, there's zero tension. There is no real excitement. It should be tied entirely to the charisma of the protagonist. And the fact you have none just makes the whole thing feel like a straight line. Yeah. And I wonder if they maybe steered into As Time Went On going more comedic. Because there's that brilliant bit after they've blown through the wall. 
where he's like, I'm blind, I can't see. And it's because like his beard has gone up over his head. And I, I wonder if, you know, how that was shot in terms of the sequencing, had they geared into more, right, he's not a leading man, but he's got some comedy to him. So let's lean into the comedy. It doesn't matter that it doesn't fit in now because we're filming out of sequence, but we'll add that in. It's very clear that, you know, Sammy Jackson playing Steve was there for a specific reason. It was like, you know, Sammy Jackson's not like one of the all-time great movie stars or anything like that, but it's someone who was a capable screen presence and could kind of carry the load a little bit in that regard because Roy Orbison is not up to the task. And it's notable they give uh, Steve most of the exposition and a lot of like kind of the bigger dialogue passages. So, you I mean, with Elvis, they'd often pair him up with another actor as well, but Elvis just had a natural screen charisma that Orbison just doesn't have. Yeah, I know... Um... I know myself, and I do believe Danny is the same. That you know, we like a bit of professional wrestling. Yeah. And um, you know, one thing you get in professional wrestling is when you have a, a very green wrestler, you'll usually put them up against with someone who's you know got a lot of reps, as it were, and they will bump is is the the term they'll use. But they'll they'll throw themselves around the ring to make the other wrestler who's very green look good. And that is what the entire cast in this film are doing to try and make Roy Orbison look good. Yeah. There's one bit of trivia that I'll tell you and you can decide if you want to cut out or not, because it's not necessarily PG, but it's great. Um, Douglas Kennedy was quoted as saying after the film's release, well, Roy Orbison was no actor, but after walking in on him in his trailer, I can tell you he has a tallywhacker like an industrial spanner, so I spare him no sympathy. Well then. <laughs> this is where you insert the noise of the slide whistle. <laughs> <laughs> Just cut to that guitar with the gun barrel coming out of it. Oh, it's a good time party time. <laughs> wow. Um, for me, it's interesting. I, in a way, enjoyed watching this film because it required zero effort yeah. To, yeah. to absorb anything in it. Yeah, you compare that to when we're doing something like, well, you've referenced Little Drummer Girl a couple times, and it's like that movie, uh, you're sitting there taking heavy notes because it's a pretty yeah. convoluted film. This was super easy to follow. There's at least 10 minutes of this that is just spent having Roy Orbison singing, maybe 15 minutes of a hour and 25-minute runtime. Yeah. Perhaps actually 25 minutes, and then the rest of it is about an hour. I'd say it's pretty close to that. And so it, it, that's telling you it doesn't really worry itself too much about the plot. And nor are you supposed to. You're supposed to just enjoy the people, laugh at the go the jokes, and listen to some singing, which is fine for the first time you view it. The second time you view it, it becomes a bit more frustrating. I don't know what that experience is like, Scott. I will never know what that experience is like. <laughs> this is one of the one of the first times uh, I I really regret doing the second viewing because that <laughs> second time was rough. I was like I was I was seeing the the strings as it were. I could see uh, you mentioned Roy Orbison like waiting for that person to react. I could almost see him mouthing their lines to a point like <laughs> when's my when's my cue? When's my cue? Ah. Yeah, here we go. I hope I hold no ill will to Roy Orbison. I I love the guy. I think he's a fantastic musician. Acting just wasn't his calling. And they they but the problem is and, it, and I wrote this in my sort of review. The film's foundations are built on Roy Orbison. Yeah. He he can't carry the weight of that and so the whole thing comes crumbling down what could have been an interesting story quite a, a fun little gimmick with the old guitar that extends out with a barrel i suppose um is an interesting thing i've never seen that before i've never seen q branch bring the uh the guitar out 
And, and yeah, that, that seems straight out of Casino Royale 67. <laughs> it's the sort of thing I'm almost surprised that Mike Myers didn't work into an Austin Powers film. Yeah. Having known how much he actually took from other films in the 60s, yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting watch to find a spy musical. I think spy uh, yeah, aficionados should maybe check it out, I think, in that sense. I think you'll, you'll find things to like about it, definitely. But uh, speaking of likes, let's, let's mosey over to the likes. Uh, Danny, what's something you liked about the film? I, I did like it when it slid into the more silly territory. You know, when you had um, the costume and you had him being blown up, going through and his, his face being covered. When it, when it steered into that, and especially at the end when, you know, they're trying to come up with their final escape, and you have the same people getting hit on the back of the head with the gun, but then eventually they rig up a pulley system. The the when they leaned into what made this film funny, I was genuinely there laughing. And it was maybe not necessarily what they intended for it to be funny with. Obviously, the representations of the indigenous Americans, that's where they're going for the comedy. Did not laugh there. But the slapstick humor of it was really good. Well, I think you've brought it up. I think maybe we should talk about that, actually, for a second. And that is the representation issue in this film. So this film features a group of indigenous people in America. And um, they're all played by white people in brown face. Uh, and it's a comedy act in the film. And they're, they're played to be quite stupid. Yeah. And I think I think that's a, a very troublesome thing. And... What, that's actually actually more interesting when you look at the fact it came out in 1967. And when Danny says it feels like something out of the 40s or the 50s, I completely agree because I think that form of comedy is more from then. But then I think about Remo Williams and I think about one of our dinosaurs is missing. So it hasn't gone away yet. Um, and I think that does really bring it down a bit for me. I mean, my second note is two minutes in and we're already in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's no avoiding that. I, and I can see where some people would watch this as like, I could, I could see it coming on like Saturday morning for kids, this sort of film, and then watching it and being and having fond memories of the film and not really understanding the problematic nature of some of these scenes, which is understandable. There's this fairly like lengthy history in American filmmaking of using these indigenous stereotypes for comedy. And it continued for a long time. You know, I remember doing... Um, the Arnie Geddon, Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast, and we tackled a movie called Cactus Jack, also known as The Villain, and that was a movie that starred Kirk Douglas alongside Arnie, and that's where a lot of the comedy comes from there. Not a great movie, by the way, as well. Um, I can think of just like all these times it's popped up throughout the years. I think there's even a gag about that sort of thing in like one of the Hot Shots movies or something like that, so... Yeah, not exactly comedy's proudest moment, and it was a moment that lasted quite a long time. But the one thing I will say is that I personally don't think it overpowers the film, whereas, say, something like One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, you can't escape the Peter Houston of it, of it all. Um, that would be where I fall down on it. They appear a couple brief times early on, and they tie into the finale, but kind of like the body of the film, that aspect isn't really there. But yeah, it ain't great. Not a great look. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that I think would probably hold it back from being perhaps reapprised and rediscovered now. It's just the fact that it's it's a bit of a relic in that sense. I think I'm glad we've spoken about it. And I think it needs to be addressed. Um, it definitely holds the film back. But let's get back on the like train. 
Uh, Cam, what about you? This is a rough one, Scott, because it was tough to like come up with things that I thought were legitimately good. I do love like just a lot of the the shots in this movie of like the wagon travel and all that. Like I really do appreciate that kind of uh Wow, we're at cinematography already. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the you know, that depiction of Western America that never existed, but has that sort of fantasy element to it. Like I always kind of find those sorts of um films enjoyable to watch even if they are uh often problematic but just visually they always are kind of splendorous to look at um but next up on cam's likes the sound mixing <laughs> oh that was not one of my likes <laughs> no, it, was a, no. No, I, it actually wasn't very good but <laughs> um and uh i mean to me honestly like the music is the highlight and so yeah. it's hard to say anything else and for me i agreed like um the uh, Pistolero was the best, the best. I wish that uh, Michael D. Moore had been a better director because I think like a little bit of a more interesting approach cinematography-wise or editing-wise, you could have really had some lively musical sequences. They don't feel very lively, but just in terms of the, you know, the... Um, the performance by Roy Orbison, I thought Pistolero in particular was great. But even even a silly one, like Snuggle Huggle, I was like, oh, this is kind of fun to watch. It's like two and a half minutes of a very silly, you know, chorus girl musical number. So I always enjoyed those. And even River, which, you know, it's kind of like a ballad that you're like, well, this is kind of slow. But at the same time, the setting for it was so beautiful of him just yeah. sitting by the river that I'm like, this would be an awesome, you know, one perfect shot kind of, uh, you know, freeze frame to put on a social media account. I mean, mm. like, it is really beautiful to look at. So it was like little images, songs, like that sort of stuff worked for me. But in terms of like a story or characters, it really didn't give me anything. I was going to say my like, but I, in one of my like final notes, I was going to bring this up, but it's kind of a perfect timing now. I agree. I think the songs are mostly great and some I actually probably would listen to again. But... Didn't everyone find it really weird that as soon as Roy Orbison started singing, a whole band would join him yeah. that aren't on screen? Yes. Or a, like sometimes it was like a full orchestra, it sounded yeah. like. Whilst he was actually in a wagon. Yeah. They were all in the back, guys. You can't see them. They're hidden away. <laughs> see, yeah. that's the thing is like the sound mixing early on for me, it was just like it's so obvious he's being dubbed over. And, you know, obviously that's technology of the time and the the songs were great but it's when you have that it does ruin the immersion a little bit but you look at something like um the les mis film yeah recently that's all live singing yeah it is and that's not them in the studio that's that's like and that and that shows in the film like it, the performances feel real well i don't think they really had the ability to record actual live musical numbers at this point in time so it usually was dubbed over but it just really depends on how effectively it's done. So like if you're watching, you know, um, one of the, like the really strong musicals of the time, say Sound of Music or something. Yeah. You go for the ride because they're pulling it off. Like the, you know, I think Robert Wise directed that, I think. Um, so like you will kind of buy into the illusion. That's what you kind of have to do with those types of musicals. Whereas like one like this, I think breaks the illusion. And I think that's, you know, probably not a particularly experienced director. They're not staged particularly well. The music has, as we've said, like all this like orchestra backing and it ain't just a guy with a guitar. And that is where it really starts to kind of fall apart. And this was stuff I really picked up on my second viewing. 
uh, and, and that's bugged me. But we're in the likes section. Now, unfortunately, you two have stolen my only two likes, so I'm going to really have to think of something uh, last second. But I will say I like the concept of the film. I agree. <laughs> you make fun of me for saying cinematography, and you're like... <laughs> Wait, okay, which part of the concept? Uh, Cam's going to grill me now because I'm not sure I have a proper answer to that question. No, I like the whole idea of this sort of super spy being sent behind enemy lines in the dying days of the war. Not necessarily saying I agree with their geopolitical stance, but I like that kind of, you know, there's pressure. Well, there's meant to be pressure on them to get the goal, to give the Confederacy its last hope against the Union. That's a, a cool concept you can go yes and from. Unfortunately, it goes no, don't instead, and you end up with this film. <laughs> well, there's nothing like this movie. And so that's no. interesting. And there are other Western musicals. You know, there's like Annie, Get Your Gun. Um, Calamity Jane. Yeah, Calamity Jane, um, Paint Your mm, Wagon, uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Like, there's a, a number of these types of movies, but there's none that have a spy element. So that makes this one interesting just for merely existing. And this is why we talk about films like this, because it's it's far more interesting than, than how do you... I mean, you can review Goldfinger, and we have reviewed Goldfinger, but at, at one point you go, like, what more can you say about a film that's been constantly analyzed in, in media for years and years and years, whereas... I wouldn't be surprised if we're the only person ever to speak about fastest guitar alive <laughs> yeah. on your podcast apps. So you're welcome, listeners. You're welcome. We do it so you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the slogan for episodes like this. You're quite right. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting... Or, of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, how about some sci-fi of the George Lucas variety? Because we are going to tackle Attack of the Clones, the second in our ongoing prequel coverage. Mm, listen, you will. <laughs> and if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Um, well, I think we might have plenty to answer in this section dislikes Danny I'm going to go for a fairly because uh, I've talked about the representation here's one is there supposed to be super spies and yet I'm watching it and I'm like you are idiots you've done like so when they're going to actually do their mission when they're going to steal the gold the fact they rock up in their branded wagon really annoyed me because anyone could be watching that any appeal for witnesses oh yeah there was that magic elixir van at the time that was parked right outside and then left conveniently is that ineptitude of the spies who were supposed to be like really clever that bugged me i i could i agree and i think you know him saying in the uh, letterbox.com synopsis that it's a super spy i have questions about but i will say james bond tells his name to everyone yeah, this is true. And he does just fine. 
yeah, I just, it bugged me. It was a silly thing to bug me. I was just like, I, I was when I said, are they just trying to be like, have, have they sold me thinking it's Super Spy when actually he's really the opposite of, like he's just this random person. And then it was like, maybe they could have done more with it if they just made it that he was this bumbling fool that had no idea what he was doing. Just to, to go from that point, you could easily adapt this and say, well, what if um, Roy Orbison's character was just a troubadour that was hired by the Confederacy to sneak into the Union because they wouldn't suspect him of being a Confederate soldier or spy because he has no tie and they're just paying him and he, he isn't a good spy and he makes mistakes along the way. That's a that's a that's an interesting story. You think of North yeah. by Northwest. You know, Cary Grant's Roger Thornhill is not a spy. He bumbles his way through a spy mission. That could have been funny. Oh, I agree. Was the Johnny character, as played by Orbison, supposed to be cool? Well, I I think so. He at one at one point he's giving a guitar lesson <laughs> to another woman. While his girlfriend slash fiance is in the room doing her hair, and when I say guitar lesson, I used air quotes, and I realise we're doing a podcast. So uh, <laughs> when I mean guitar lesson, they were making out doing the snuggle wuggle on the couch. And it cuts to the guitar, and her foot is like strumming the strings, and then the uh, yeah. barrel slowly emerges from the guitar to a sound effect like. <laughs> It's not the only thing that was making that noise. Well, I'll, I'll leave that image in your heads. Uh, you know where that scene might go. So yeah, he's meant to be like he's played as a, like a Lothario ladies' man at that point, but I don't get the impression he really is. Well, no. I think it's because Roy Orbison is so unbelievably stiff, and that's not a pun about the <laughs> guitar <laughs> barrel. <laughs> As an actor. <laughs> oh, no. oh no, Cam, pull up. <laughs> Wait, don't pull up. Don't pull up. <laughs> that he's just like, you know, he's in block of wood territory. And so I'm like, I'm unclear if I'm supposed to think this guy is like a cool super spy because he looks like a guy who almost like won a contest to be in a movie and has yeah. like wandered in and is just like looking to everyone for guidance. And I'm like, you're supposed to, I think, be the cool guy at the center of this movie. Yeah. Is is Roy Orbison the Tommy Wiseau of spy movies at this point? No, because Tommy Wiseau tries. Like, he gets on screen and he's like, I have no ability, but I am going to swing for the fences. I feel like Roy Orbison, I'd be curious if he was just very, very nervous yeah. shooting this movie. I mean, if you're trying to emulate Elvis, yeah, you're going to be nervous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I can imagine there was a lot of a lot of riding on this project for him, and so maybe the nerves did get to him. Yeah, you, you're probably right, Cam. Well, you can see that, like, um, you know, um, Joan Freeman, who plays his girlfriend Sue, is like having to do a lot of the heavy lifting as well. It seems like everyone around him is having to kind of put in a little bit of extra effort to try to build his character up. Did, I just saw this on IMDb, and I don't think I ever made this connection in the film. The two female leads are sisters. Yeah, the Chestnut Sisters. I did not connect that, no, when I was watching I the movie. Not. No, sir. No, sir. Well, we have a musical expert here, so of course Danny recognised these things before we did. That makes sense. It's very White Christmas in the way they're, they're depicted, I think, that you know, you've got travelling sisters going about and touring with everyone. But it was like a throwaway line very early on that if you didn't hear it then, you'd never have heard it. 
were all the other women that were traveling with them their sisters too? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, because I, I missed them. I was like, where did they come from? And then I realized they were in the little wagon at the back as well at the start. Everything is in that wagon at the back. The orchestra, the sisters, the gold. The costumes. Wow. Yeah. That is, a, that is a Harry Potter wagon right there. It's endless. <laughs> Cam, what about you? Dislike? Oh, boy. Um, like, Where do I start? I would say that like a big part of the problem is that because you know Roy Arbison isn't a very good actor, so much of the focus of the movie is plot-based. And so like you have a lot of this espionage stuff, all of the heist elements, and they fall completely flat. Like, I found it just so dull watching those sequences because at that point, Roy Orbison ain't singing and, you know, Steve is, I don't know, doing some sort of, like, action kind of stuff. But it's, like, it's not interesting and there's no pace with the direction. So, like, this is an 87-minute movie, but, like, those sequences I felt, like, really slowed it down and they kind of take over the back half of the movie. Yeah, well, I, I wrote down in my notes, it's actually one of my dislikes, so I, I think it's probably the same thing. The film loses steam after the heist. Yeah. yeah. Because um, then they're just sort of traveling around until they get to the finale, but there's no real tension. And a problem with the tension also is that you have them being pursued by Marshall Max, uh, played by John Doucette. And I mean, talk about like just a boring character who, other than being gruff, there's no sense of that Tommy Lee Jones, I'm on their trail, I'm going to hunt them down at any cost. He mostly just sits in like the saloon talking to Charlie, this other guy who factors into the movie very loosely. And so it's like you don't even have that sense of like cat and mouse. You introduce a couple more villains later in the movie who want to steal the gold, but they're very generic and forgettable as well. So you don't even have antagonists that are propelling the movie. So yeah, just in terms of like building tension or suspense or anything it just has no momentum yeah it, it's hard to i mean like i said the first time i watched it, i switched my brain off and just kind of went with it which i think is the perfect way to watch this film but if you are looking to invest any attention in a in this spy film i think it will not pay off after the sort of 30 minute mark yeah and i mean the finale is so weak too with like all of the villains yeah and, and, they, and they just get away with it in the end as well i mean they they steal gold yeah. uh, your your heroes are stealing which is a problem in itself which i want to get to in a minute but they steal gold and then the sheriff goes well okay you're fine <laughs> you returned it <laughs> it fell under the umbrella of wartime espionage i guess i they would guess they were doing it under duress because it was a mission maybe because we get the end of the Civil War, and I kind of like that little bit where everyone's like square dancing in the street. That was kind of fun. But like, I guess because it was acts of war, then it somehow passes by. I, I don't know. I can't. I don't know the politics of uh, post-Civil War gold thefts. Well, by that point, you'll just like wrap it up and get out, guys. Yeah. You're down here. I think Max says that they're the last Confederates to surrender, so it's like they're willing to accept the gold back because it officially now marks the end of the civil war. But how do they know that? Yeah. <laughs> it's not the age of the internet. They're not texting each other. That, oh, there's only two Confederates left and they're out there stealing gold, guys. Grab them. <laughs> they're, well, they've got the wires. <laughs> oh, of course. Yes. Everyone's on the wires. Right. 
better than SMS, folks. Who needs it? Let's go back to telegrams. I just think Confederate QHQ have have got some like, as well as the the technology for this guitar gatling gun they've also got some like really good notes on who's out in the field and it turns out that once they surrender it's like oh well, there's these two rogue agents now and you, you kind of need them or else this war's not wrapped up maybe it's like a damning critique of the confederate army and that these two are their best super spies <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very like condor man in a sense where you get this weirdo who's like hey build me this condor car and this condor boat and this condor suit and I will do the, I will save the day for you. Now, luckily, Condor Man does. But our folks here, they do manage to steal the gold. But, I, you know, they never get it back to their boss. I have to... If you could look at, like, a Q branch scene in a Bond film, there's a lot of weird gadgets that don't necessarily add up. So I'm not going to really hold... I'm not going to really drag this uh, film over the, the coals for having the guitar. It, it makes no sense why you'd need to conceal a gun in a guitar when everyone else is just carrying a gun in their holster. Yeah. Why why are you hiding it? Oh, it just it just occurred to me actually. Robert Rodriguez uh used this gag in um Desperado. So Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino are big fans of the fastest guitar alive confirmed here on Spy Hunts. Well, <laughs> I made a note when I was watching uh Roy Orbison, you know, draw the gun out of the guitar and fire it. And I was like, this does not look cool. This looks like really silly. And I was making a note, like, is it supposed to be cool, question mark? But it would seem like Rodriguez, when he did Desperado, was like, I can make this look really cool. And he does. It's just The question is, who are they concealing it from? Because everyone has a gun on their holster. That is also true. I, have, I, have we broken the film, folks? Have we ruined this film? The film was broken long before we got here. <laughs> That's, this is true. This is true. Oh, well, okay, my dislike... Um, that hasn't been mentioned yet is the love story. Yeah, yeah. Between our lead Roy Orbison playing Johnny and Joan Freeman playing Sue Chestnut, part of the Chestnut Sisters. Uh, that Cam mentioned earlier that was doing all the heavy lifting in the relationship, but by the end she falls in love with him despite one of their first scenes together where he's just cheating on her with someone else. I mean, Scott, it's <laughs> it's better to have had peanuts. And lost than to never have peanuts at all. These peanuts are making me thirsty. Still <laughs> this line. Yeah, I didn't understand that peanuts thing particularly. Yeah, I I don't know how they expected us to buy. Maybe if Roy Orbison had been ever so slightly magnetic, had some sort of magnetic force, some something to draw you in. Maybe you would have bought the romance because they do spend 90 minutes trying to build it up to the point where she gets engaged and they say they want to get married and have kids. But because he's such a, well, he's like a rake standing up. It has nothing to him apart from the fact that he can play guitar and sing. He can do it well, but he cannot act. It's a tough romance to navigate, especially like you have the secondary romance between um steve and flo a flo played by maggie pierce and like steve is someone who's conflicted about committing to romance because he doesn't have any real money or anything and you have a scene of them sitting kind of talking about the relationship and i'm like it's silly it's very superficial but like i kind of like just the dynamic of these two i wrote down like hey steve this flo seems like a keeper in my notes and <laughs> yeah. then we kind of cut to the stuff with roy orbison and uh, sue and i'm like 
this is rough. Like, I just don't buy this relationship, even on a very superficial Elvis cast-off kind of movie vibe. Like, it just doesn't work for me. I will say this for Joan Freeman. Um, you know, horror fans may know her very well for playing Tommy Jarvis's mom in Friday the 13th, Part 4. So she has some cult status there. And I have to imagine, like, she was someone who had a pretty long filmography. Um, she might still be working. I'm not 100% sure. But... Um, this was a tough assignment for her. It's like making something that doesn't even work on paper work. Yeah, you're right. It, it's, a, it's a really tough ask to have a trained actor acting off of someone who does not know how to act. It, I, I imagine, I mean, it's like podcasting with you, Cam. Thank you. Thank you. It's like you cannot engineer chemistry when one side is just total dead air. Right back to it, you, Cam. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, well, I, I think we've made our thoughts on this film quite clear, but uh, I think before we go to the knock list, let's just sort of tackle any final notes people have laying around. Danny, anything else for us? I did really like one of the things in terms of like the spy element of it was when they did Rolling On and that song was also serving as a coded message, like we're going to go to San Francisco. And there's that nice moment where the Chestnut Sisters just, they're enjoying the song and they're smiling and bopping along and then they turn to each other like, there's something up here. And it's the way they discreetly go towards the door. And then Roy Orbison comes back and like, did you get my message? <laughs> but I thought it was a really nice way in terms of a spy movie at sharing a coded message that I hadn't seen before. I mean, well done, firstly, for out-acting Roy Orbison there, Danny. That was a yeah. fantastic performance. Um, <laughs> amazing stuff. Yeah, I, I think that was a great thing. It actually reminded me a lot, and sorry to bring up Springfield Rifle, but it was a really interesting way they coded messages in that film as well with, like, the, the prices of the cattle. No, the prices of the horses, I should say. Yeah. Um, and it, it had that sort of interesting spy vibe to it. So there is, there is that nice connective tissue. You're right. I do like the whole Western espionage vibe. Mm. Say it, Cam. Westpionage? That's the way you say it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple more out there. Uh, The Great Locomotive Chase being one. um, Buster Keaton's the general. Uh, So, like, I'm looking forward to hopefully tracking down a couple more obscurities, even though we've yet to find the one that belongs on, like, a knock list, like an all-time great you know, Western spy. We haven't got there yet. What are you talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Um, So like, I look forward to hopefully finding one that is just legit. Great. Uh, Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if it ever yields itself. I would, I would also like one that isn't based around the civil war of America, please. Yeah. Well, I don't know that that's going to be as likely because I think that's a prime setting for espionage. But isn't there a lot of, actually, I suppose, I mean, did spies, spies still existed back in the time of cowboys. And I guess, I, just, I don't know why they would be spying. Okay. Well, we'll find it. We'll track it down. It's like when you, you know, tie espionage to World War II or the Cold War. Civil War makes a lot of sense to be having people go back and forth. So, I don't know. I think that's a pretty strong setting, but it doesn't feel like they've nailed it. Because um, Wild Wild West as well, the Will Smith, you know, film, similar thing, right? True, true. And we are going to tackle that one too at some point. And I, I, I never thought, one of my notes was, I never thought I would be glad I watched Springfield Rifle until I until I learned about the politics to do that episode because I had no real idea about the American Civil War before we tackled it on that. So going into this, I knew who the Confederacy and the Union were. Right, yeah, yeah. Now I understand it a lot better. I mean, it, it, this was going to be my question. I suppose it pivots it over to it. 
now this is 1967. We know, well, the American Civil War is over by this point. Long oh, yeah. over. Long, long finished. We know who the winners and losers were and the ones who are painted as the villains in the annals of history. Why did they set it as your lead is in the Confederacy? Well, there was sort of this, like, mythical approach to the South as being sort of like, you know, you go back to, like, uh, Gone with the Wind, sort of like the mighty South that once reigned. And, like, it's continuing into things like Dukes of Hazard as well. Like, they had, you know, the General Lee car. It was like this whole romanticized idea of the South that I think, I mean, they're still reckoning with and will be for a long time, right? Yeah. And, you know, we are not Americans, so we have... I think maybe not as complex an understanding of the dynamics, but like the idea of creating sort of like heroes who came from the South kind of falls within that era to me. It doesn't seem insane, but it does when you look at it more in 2022. I'm, I'm not against the concept of doing it at all. I think it, it's rich territory to explore. I just, um, I think it puts your film on a back foot from the start because there's this built in, feeling about the confederacy much like there's a, a built-in feeling about other organizations and civil wars throughout history and wars throughout history that if you put that uniform on someone or you attribute them to that group or or nation that you are already suspicious of them or distrusting yeah. or disliking of them which as an outsider as cam pointed out i'm british i mean you know you all left us years ago, so why should I care? But no, um, <laughs> there's, there's a song, in, a few songs about that in Hamilton. But yeah, I I don't know. I, I, when I hear the Confederacy, I think bad guys, and I I don't know if I can really process that. Yeah, I think like you said, if they'd given more character to them, like there's certainly something you could do that actually makes them more likable. That yes, we we don't necessarily have to agree with their politics, but actually as people they could be nice but even when they're spouting you know the exact same stuff that the south talks about and they're glamorizing a lot of the racism you're just like this is a problem that well he he pines for the cotton picking fields yeah 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 and that's that's a problem yeah and if he had maybe a different idea of a south he was that was worth defending in his mind that didn't focus on those aspects of it then you could get on board with it. It just it's it's a weird thing for him to have said, this is what I miss about the South. This is why I'll fight for the South. It's like you're not making your case any better, friend. Well, I, I think about um a film we tackled a few months ago now, Black Book, which is about uh Nazi occupation of Holland. Now I'm not comparing the Confederacy to Nazis, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is they create a compelling character from a Nazi general that by the end of the film you do feel somewhat sorry for. Like he feels human. Yeah. yeah. Like he has he has dimension to him and there are reasons for his actions, but his actions ultimately are detestable, but you can understand certain elements of the man. And you know, you could you could easily change uh Johnny and Steve to, as I mentioned, not being Confederate soldiers and just working for the Confederacy. Or they could be only doing this to get money to marry and give good lives to Flo and Sue. Sure. Like easy, easy little wins there where you go, okay, I understand that motivation. None of that's given. Right. Or even being, you know, 
even being kind of like these just musical guys uh, who are just out on the road and are employed by the Confederates to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then, then there's none of these sort of ties. Right. None of these anchors. None of these weights. Um, Cam, any any final notes? Yeah, there was that scene that was also uncomfortable with the shady deputy like assaulting um Flo when the women are showering out in the you know out in the woods. Yeah. That was uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. I put the note that's one way to make me root for the Confederates. Yeah, that's maybe that's why it was in there. Yeah, that's a yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, cuz that would have been like the Union side was attacking them, yeah. Well, cuz if you if you extrapolate that further, the sheriff that he's working for also turns out to be a bad guy, as well as the owner of the tavern back in the, the place they first were in San Francisco, I believe. Yeah, Charlie, yeah. And so it's like capitalism is the problem. Yeah. Um, which I guess they sort of conflate with the union. I, I Maybe I'm reading too much into a very fluffy film. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think the thing is the movie doesn't want you to ask any of those questions. This is a movie that's just like, this is a 90-minute, you know, silly ride. But it's introducing elements that probably were complicated in 1967, but are even more so now. Yeah, I don't think we're necessarily going to unpack them here. Um, my only final note I had was I wish some of my job interviews were like the one they had at the end of this film, where they got jobs working at that, that bar, tavern place. By, hey, can you dance? Yep, gig's yours. I was so confused by that scene because I was like, wait, who is this woman? Like, why is she offering them a job? Does she know who they are? Thankfully, one scene later, it explained that she was in cahoots with Charlie. So I was like, okay, this makes sense. But I was absolutely baffled through the entirety of that scene. I think baffled through the scene is uh, something I could attribute to a lot of this film. I will also say I really love the line. I could kill you with it and play your funeral march at the same time. Yeah, I wrote that one down. That's a good line. He had some good one-liners. Yeah. I did cringe at the shot of the wagon going in reverse, where they just, like, <laughs> rewound the film. For a, sec- for a second, I was like, hey, can they do that? Oh, no, no, they just reversed the tape. They just reversed the tape. I took me a moment to, to realize that. I was quite ashamed by it, but I think that's the impact of this film. Watching it for 87 minutes, my IQ dropped a few points. To be fair, Danny... You and I are around about the same age. Cam has been going since they were traveling around in wagons. It's true. He knows better than us. He does. He <laughs> it's does. True. Um, yeah. Well, I think uh, we've uh, cast our final thoughts on the film. Let's get to it. Knockless time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was really trying to be earnest there. Um, is the fastest guitar alive making the knockless? Danny, you're our guest. What do you think? As much as I'd love to mess with your knock list, no, it absolutely doesn't. <laughs> I'm glad you hold it in such high regard that you wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that to you. Some some have. Some have. <laughs> I'm not doing that to you. I've got too much respect for the knock list to dare put fastest guitar alive on it. <laughs> I mean, what's the slowest guitar alive? The one that the indigenous chief has and tries to use. Perhaps. Oh, Yep. Mm. Good call. Good call. And what do you call? And the other question I actually is just sprung to mind. What do you call the sequel? A faster guitar. Yeah. I was going to say the second fastest guitar alive, and it's like, it's like a duel. Oh, okay. I I was going to do something with like, um, the fastest guitar alive, dead stop, 
or Dead Reckoning or something like that. You know, like you go with the uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Oh, okay. Of it all. No. You could also have The Day the Music Died, maybe. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> the, the string's broken. I don't know. Broken string. Out of tune. Out of tune. That's it. We've got it. <sighs> now right, to start uh, writing. Yeah, uh, the the sequel that no one wanted. <laughs> 50 years in the making. Fastest Guitar 2. Who's the star of it this time? Oh. In 2022, who's, who's the star? Harry Styles. Harry Styles is the first person to pop to my mind as well. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sign him up. <laughs> I'm sure he would love to do this, the sequel to this film. His agent calls him like, Harry, Harry, I've got the film for you. It's a sequel to a Roy Orbison film. He's like, oh, I love Roy Orbison. That's great. And then I'll send you a copy for the first film. You can watch it. Uh, but can you just sign the contract first? Why? Don't ask. Don't ask why. And then he gets it and, of course, doesn't sign up for it. But Okay, so he passes on it like Elvis did in the 50s. Sure. Who's the artist that does it? Miley Cyrus. Oh. oh. You see, I feel like oh, okay. she gets first crack at a project. I don't know. I think that's because your musical taste is stuck 20 years ago. Harry Styles is kind of like the guy now. I have no idea. I'm so old. So old and broken. <laughs> you are. You are. You're, you're certainly not the fastest guitar alive. No. It would actually be a really interesting premise that, you know, it's like the daughter of the fastest guitar alive. And then if you want to have Roy Orbison's character, if you want Johnny back, obviously we can't, but we'll get Miley's dad, Billy Ray Cyrus, involved somehow. I don't want to see this movie. I... No. <laughs> Hang on. I just, I just, uh, we're having silly crossover titles. You've got Fastest Guitar Alive. It's directed by the guy who did the second unit on Little Drummer Girl. Mashup film. The Fastest Drummer Girl. Oh my God. Drum solo. Yes. Like, uh, What's that film um, with J.K. Simmons? Whiplash. Whiplash, yeah. It's a sequel to that as well. It's it's all mixing in. Florence Pugh, your agent, will get in contact. Oh, yeah. There we go. Florence Pugh would jump at the chance to reprise the role of Charlie. The greatest cinematic universe. Oh. Trump Marvel, without a doubt. The spicy you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll go, it'll go yeah, creatively bankrupt in 10 years, but it'll be a good 10 years whilst it's there. That's right. Um, Cam, I didn't ask. Knocklist? No, no. I would love to put like a musical spy film on the list. Yeah. I would love to put a Western spy film on the list, but today is not the day. <laughs> no, it was not the day. Um, I think I'm the same. It's a no. It's a. It's one of those curios. I said at the start, for spy aficionados, the people that are really following us week to week, who love talking about spy films with us, maybe check it out. But the mission statement of this podcast is to make a list of the best spy films ever created. And uh, this does not deserve to be on the same list. No, no. It is a bummer. But uh, I would say, like, you know, I was pondering while watching it, like, the disavowed list. Is this bad enough? And in some ways it is. But I also feel like it's too interesting a curiosity to put on a disavowed list because it has the merit of being a Roy Orbison vehicle. And also, I don't think it's on par in terms of awfulness, something like one of our dinosaurs is missing. Yeah. When it comes to its insensitive attitudes towards things, because I think that side of it is far more minimal than one of our dinosaurs, which I think anyway, that's that's an interesting premise. There's dinosaurs running around London. Great. And there's spies too, even better. But 
that film is weighed down heavily by the the Ustinov factor. And I just found that film a much tougher ride just to sit through those 90 minutes versus this one, which was like kind of a breezy, silly time that has offensive elements, but it at least had the interest of the musical numbers and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, there you go, folks. It's unfortunately three no's, and our second Western film is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Danny. Oh, Danny boy. <laughs> Thank you for jumping on the show for our 99th episode. I uh, can't believe we've gotten this far, and um, I'm so glad you could do it with us. No, it's been a pleasure. Can I be the first to say happy 100? I can't wait. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If we make it. Yeah. <laughs> if we make if it. If anything's going to kill it, it's going to be the fastest guitar. <laughs> yeah, it's entirely possible. Um, but, you know, we mentioned it earlier on the show, but it's a musical podcast. Uh, what have you got coming up on the show? Um, we will be covering, it's really fun for us actually, because we're actually going back to uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, not many podcasters get a chance to redo their first episode, but we're actually going to go catch it whilst it's on tour at Woking. So that's going to be really exciting for us. Uh, and then we're continuing with our Disney series where we go back and watch every single Disney musical from from start. So we've just done Cinderella, and I think the next one is Sleeping Beauty. Oh, nice. So, Excellent film. Really excited because... A lot of these Disney films, I, especially the older ones, I've not watched since I was a child. So it's really interesting going back and re-watching like, the foundation of my youth and has it aged well. But yeah, we get to redo our first episode with Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat and then Sleeping Beauty, as well as other great musical content. Well, uh, I am available to sing the rest of the song on the episode if you need it. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, please don't call me on that. I will regret it immediately. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan of its musical podcast. I'm a big fan of musicals in general. I recommend you all check it out if you love musicals. And I've appeared on the show myself talking about my favorite musical, which is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You so did. check out that episode too. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes below. Damn right. Um, Danny, thank you again for joining us. No, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Thank you again, Danny, for joining us. Cam, the question goes to you. That was number 99. What are we doing for the amazing number 100? Well, we are celebrating in style by going back to the beginning. The beginning of when we were considering this podcast and trying to figure out what it could be. And we stumbled across the name Spy Hards, inspired at least partly by a 1996 Leslie Nielsen film called Spy Hard. Well, it's 100, so we're going back to the beginning and tackling Spy Hard. Yeah, I mean, two Spy Hards are hard for spying on the spy movie Spy Hard. That's right. That's a lot of Spy Hard. That's right. Too much, some would say. Perhaps. But uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk all about Agent WD-40 with you. And I'm a massive Leslie Nielsen fan, so I'm looking forward to tackling this film. And to add to the celebration, we are also talking that week to the director and co-writer of the film, Rick Friedberg. And I can tell you, we do have his official permission to use the name. So it's all signed off now. Yes, thankfully, we can finally keep the lawyers at bay. We are going to be spyhards going forward into episode 101. Yeah. After that, maybe not. But uh, at least 101, I think we're secure. Yeah. 
Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Spy Hard and join us next week for our 100th film review. I still can't quite believe it. And if you like what you heard on the podcast, do consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us spread the spy hard love. And it is our 100th episode, so why not do it now? And do not forget to follow us if you do not already discreetly, of course, on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next time, listeners. Here, here I go. A lucky so-and-so Happy cause I know I got my fast guitar